0: A full-grown big horn ram is about as big as an NFL football player and weighs about as much. They have much better eyesight than humans, and they can easily stand on a ledge that's only two inches wide. How do they spend most of their day? Doing something absolutely absurd. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about scarcity and the appearance of weakness. But first, here's a message from our sponsor.
1: The majestic bald eagle, a visage of bright white plumage, talents ten times stronger than an adult's grip, and a piercing yellow gaze. But did you know that bald eagles are often patients in wildlife hospitals with symptoms from lead poisoning? Raptors fall victim to lead poisoning mostly from eating microscopic lead particles in contaminated carrion. The simple solution that will preserve the nation's avian symbol is for hunters and fishermen to use non-lead ammunition and lures.
0: You might already be ahead of me. Bighorn ram, which are sheep, live in segregated communities. The Male rams live separate from the female sheep, and the male rams, during mating season, spend their days racing at each other at 40 miles an hour and then slamming into each other headfirst, sort of like the NFL, except they do it all the time. Why on earth would they do this? Okay, let's shift gears a little bit to first peoples, indigenous peoples in the Pacific Northwest, 1700s or 1800s, where a key way of settling disagreements was something called potlatch. Potlatch, eventually outlawed by some tribes, involved a leader of a group going to others and giving away his possessions. Not some of his possessions, all of them, including his clothing. That the way you won is by showing that you were so strong, so confident in your ability to survive, so sure that your community would take care of you, that you would aggressively and intentionally give things away to the other side to prove that you were not weak. And what we see in the mating rituals of the ram, or the way human beings dance around status roles, is that it is not about being the strongest. Because being able to batter another ram at 40 miles an hour doesn't mean you're strong. It just means you're not weak. And there's a difference, of course, because strong means you can do something useful, whereas not weak means that you can survive. So human beings have adopted with our culture many, many layers of nuanced demonstrations of not being weak. So, some examples. Driving a pickup truck, even though you've never put anything in the bed and you might never do so. Or, the other night, I was at a restaurant. I said to the sommelier, because I was ordering wine for a group I was with, do you have any suggestions? And I pointed to three bottles of wine on the list, all of which cost about the same amount. It's a universal signal to the sommelier of, this is how much I want to spend. And in a clear and loud voice, the sommelier pointed to a different wine on the list and said, this one is the one you should get. It is much better than those, and it has really aged well. And the wine he pointed to cost twice as much. So what am I gonna do? Admit that I'm weak? Admit that I'm not generous? or simply buy the wine he pointed to. But it's not just about winning when it comes to money. We've made this super nuanced. It used to be, just 150, 200 years ago, that being Rubenesque, being pleasantly plump, was a way of showing others that you were healthy and also not weak, that you had enough food, that a way of demonstrating your status was not being skinny. But over the years, in many parts of our culture, that has shifted, and it has shifted because people are able to show other people, I am not weak, I have willpower, I can control what I eat, aren't you impressed? Some people give enormous amounts of money to nonprofit organizations, they often call it charity, but they're also getting their name on a building. What does it mean to go to a gala at the Waldorf Astoria where it's a 1000 or $2,000 a plate to eat food that's not very good and sit through speeches you don't want to hear? Wouldn't it be better to cut the Waldorf out of the equation? Don't send them the money for the chicken and instead send all the money to the nonprofit and not be seen doing so? Well, sure, but part of what it means to show up at the gala is to show that you are not weak, and to be selfish is a form of being weak. And so nonprofits have turned the status competition among certain groups of people into a fundraising tool. If you wanna see the quest to not be seen as weak, just go to any high school, because it is expressed in so many ways. The mean girls, the people who are connected with one another, the ones who are running student groups and the ones who refuse to be involved, the ones who are showing their uniqueness by having a mohawk or heavy mascara, or the ones who are showing their uniqueness by not doing so. They're all on a quest to not being seen as weak, which is, as I said, totally different than being seen as strong. In the book years ago, The Millionaire Next Door, the authors based on an extensive amount of research, discovered that lots and lots of millionaires in the United States had become that way by sticking at the same job, working their way up the bureaucracy, driving a Buick, living in a small house, and living simply. However, even though they were strong by the measure of their buying power, notice that word power, they were easily seen as weak. And those who wanted to be seen as strong who bought in to the way the culture demands they act to send the right signals, who bought boats, which is basically a hole in the water you can throw money into, or fancy cars every couple years, or a house that they can ill afford, those signals that they're buying to show that they are not weak, actually made them weaker. And so when we think about political conversations, which are different than conversations about governance. Political conversations are conversations where we're not actually talking about the problem, we're talking around it, because by labeling it political, we've made it hard to talk about it. It's more about allegiance and tribal behavior. What we see is each side trying harder than the other to be seen as not weak. What does it mean to be weak on crime? Does Putting people in jail for a long period of time help anyone? Does it help the economy? Does it help the humans in jail? Does it help the people who aren't in jail? Or, as research keeps showing us again and again and again, isn't being seen as weak on crime the single best way to make crime go down, the single best way to make our culture better? Oh, it doesn't matter because the conversation isn't about strength or doing the right thing, the conversation is about what does it mean to being seen as weak. And so it begins with what kind of clothes are you wearing or what kind of handshake do you have, but proceeds through every single facet of how we see our culture. Plenty of writing has been done about the way we raise boys and girls in the West. Boys growing up to be heroes to show no, quote, weakness, to not cry. Girls growing up to be princesses, showing no weakness in terms of where they are in the pecking order, and making sure that they are properly attired and acting in just the right way. All of these things used against us on our quest to actually be resilient and quote strong, because what's instead happening is we're being indoctrinated into not being seen as weak. Growing up, my kids used to have the Halloween parade at their elementary school. I loved it. It was a magical day every time. We're talking about kids between five and 11 years old in a parade on their way to school, everyone in a costume. And over the years, I saw the costumes shift, but the general dynamic was the boys went as heroes and the girls went as princesses. And yes, it started to shift as people started to understand that gender roles and appearing weak or strong don't have to be related. But it was also fascinating to see how the peer pressure kicked in. Because often when you have a Halloween parade in a high school setting, a bunch of kids aren't gonna get in costume at all because to do so, to fit in that way, they might think would make them seem weak. And then there is the costume of the day, of the costume of the year, the way everyone is dressing this year for Halloween oh, I better do something or I will be seen as weak. So when we try to change the culture, part of our job is to come up with the narrative, the story, the metaphor for how taking action that actually makes things better, taking action that is resilient and strong also makes you look not weak because it's almost impossible to persuade people to want to look weak. We don't, unless of course someone persuades us that the best way to be not weak is to be willing to look a little bit weak. And so yes, we get mirrors inside of hallways inside of mirrors inside of hallways. This repetition and echo of, well, yes, I know I played down here, but I was only able to do that potlatch style because I'm so strong. And so we see the Silicon Valley CEO who shows up in a sweater instead of a suit because they don't need to wear a suit to show they're strong. In fact, wearing a suit might be a sign of weakness. They can wear a sweater. But if enough CEOs wear sweaters, well then of course it might be seen as a sign of weakness because you can't be seen for who you are. You have to hide looking like some sort of venture-back tech bro influenced by Steve Jobs instead of showing up as somebody who is actually strong. So we're constantly doing this math, even the most secure of us, worried about the appearance of being weak. Of course, the context will change. It will change based on who we don't want to be seen as weak by. It will change based on what the culture around us is. But this appearance of weakness isn't talked about enough. We need to talk about it when we're looking at status roles and affiliation. We need to talk about it when we're inventing our next marketing story, when we're trying to change the culture to get us to a point of resilience. What can you do to help people not seem weak? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes, but first, here's a message from our sponsor no ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to to talk about what you're interested in. So, if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30 second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non commercial and nonprofit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, please visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K. And click the appropriate button. Three really juicy questions this week. Here we go.
2: Hi, Seth. My name is Howard from Los Angeles. My question is about where
1: the smallest viable audience meets people like us do things like this. How does one navigate between a relatively small audience that is like us and one that is more inclusive, less
2: like us, or more like us in less obvious ways?
0: Sometimes coining a phrase gives me a great deal of satisfaction, but sometimes it might be a little too short for its own good. People like us do things like this means something very specific and has absolutely nothing to do with what people look like or even what their income is or where they live. People like us is meta. It says, do you consider yourself people like us? People like us could be folks who are part of a mission, a journey, a sports team, a part of the culture. People like us. If you are an insider, how do you know? You know because you do things like this. So it is not an exclusive way of being in the world, it's inclusive because it's a choice to be people like us. So it's completely aligned with the smallest viable audience because the smallest viable audience says, I'm only here to serve people like us, people who do this, people who are showing up in the world in a certain way. And it is entirely possible that you, the marketer, the creator, the entrepreneur, whoever it is, isn't people like us, you're simply here to serve them. So you can run a dialysis center without having an illness in your kidney. But what you can do is establish a culture as to what thriving patients in your practice are like. What do they do? How often do they show up? What are the code words? What's the culture like? Because the definition of culture is people like us do things like this. And you get to figure out who the people like us are and what are the things like this. Because you are the leader. Hello, Seth, Jean from Castleman, Ontario, Canada. I wanted to start by saying thank you. Thank you for all you put out in the world, whether it's the books, the podcasts or the blogs, all of them
2: have had an impact in my life at the right time. Thank you so much. Quick question for you. Over the last couple of years, I really started reading a lot more and I've accumulated a good number
0: of books. That I've read uh, and that have given me lessons. I know there's still a lot of lessons left in them. And so one of the questions I have is how do you
2: decide whether you go back and reread a book to try and gather more from that book or gain more or invest into a new book where um, it may or may not have
0: the quality and the lesson uh, that you hope to learn? How do you make that decision? Thank you. Thank you for this one. I own a Japanese saw. Actually, I own three, but that's too many. I own a Japanese pull saw. And what's interesting about it is the first time I got it, it was thrilling because it cut a different direction than I was used to. It cut smoothly and well. But I use it again and again. I don't have to buy a new one every single time I want to cut a piece of wood because it's a tool. That is really different from episode three, of Extraordinary Attorney Wu. I'm never going to watch episode three again. Not because it wasn't good, it was really good. But it was only good the first time because watching it was about discovery, about experiencing something I had not experienced before. New facts, a new plot, new characters. It's the very freshness of it that makes it interesting. So you're probably guessing where I'm going here. Some books are tools. Some books are there because they are fresh explorations of something you hadn't considered. So the books I read again and again, going all the way back to a book my mom read me when I was three years old, these are tools. These are books that are designed not to tell me something I didn't know already, but to reset my brain and understanding, to put me back to a spot I need to go so I can start digging deeper into something I already know I need to do. And as I get older, when I'm doing this work that I do, I find that the number of books I want to and need to reread goes up. Because going back to a tool, a tool I know how to use, that is a privilege. And so when I'm writing, I'm trying to write a tool. Generally, my last 20 books have all been tools. The first time you read it, I hope it turns on some lights from you. I hope that you hear something if it's an audio book or read something if it's in print that was new to you. But I'm most satisfied when people use them as a tool, coming back to them again and again to remind themselves of something that they already knew but needed to see fresh one more time.
2: Hi, Seth. This is Diego Vaccaro from Argentina. Thanks for your insights, your thoughts, and all you do for the future of our world and the environment. I'm reading the Carbon Amanac, and it made me think very seriously about the future. I mean my future, the future of my activity, and my impact on future generations. The thing is that I'm the owner of a company which imports and distributes auto parts for the Argentinian market. And on the other hand, I'm a person very concerned about the environment and the climate change, so that's a kind of contradiction. The question is what should I do? Should I stop doing business by closing my company or maybe selling it to someone else? In this case, the risk is that the new person, the new owner, or maybe my competitors will take place of my position in the market are less concerned than me about the environment? Or should I continue doing business and trying to compensate uh, by planting trees, shifting to solar energy, and so on? All things that I have been doing, but I, I, I want to increase the compensations I'm doing. Uh, what do you think? I appreciate so much your opinion.
0: Thank you. Thank you for this question. It's a really good one, and it gets to the heart of what I took away from organizing the Carbon Almanac, which is this. Carbon footprint invented by Ogilvy and Mather for British Petroleum in the 1980s to make people feel guilty about their personal behavior so that they wouldn't speak up about systems problems because no one likes to be a hypocrite. Carbon footprint isn't really the problem. It is a symptom of the problem. The problem is the system around us. You are correct. If you sell your auto parts business, someone else is going to buy it. The number of auto parts sold isn't going to change. The question is, how are we going to change the system? And that begins with, which questions are we even asking? And you've already brought up a key point. As somebody who leads in your industry, you have the ability to ask questions more and more often. Then when we look at how Patagonia has shifted the way millions of people think about fast fashion, we see the power that industry can have. That what you can do is figure out how to speak up as a voice, as someone in the room for alternative ways of transportation, for challenging and encouraging people to keep their beloved car in the garage and keep it shiny and new, and maybe walk to work or take an electric bicycle. There are lots of ways we can change our culture, and every one of us, including me, is a hypocrite. We're not asking. We don't need to stop being hypocrites. What we need to do is speak up, organize, see the systems, and then work with other people to challenge them and change them. Too often we get short-sighted and ask, what will this do to my business in the short run? When the right question might be, what will this do to the place I live, to the culture I am part of, to the life I want to build? Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time.
1: There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. Carbon and the impact of humans on the earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem. So much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned It's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short we've been lied to. But here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. Here are three steps you can take. First, go to thecarbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others Every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for the Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find the Carbon Almanac Podcast Network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.